Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You start to understand that those kind of disappointments are actually very standard mm-hmm. and that it's really part of the job and you kind of just have to let the waves sort of crash over you. Hello, writers. Welcome back to Write Off, the podcast about writing rejection in all its forms, from self-doubt to books not selling. I'm your host, Francesca Steele, a journalist and writer based in London. And if you want to know more about my own experience with writing rejection, you can hear about that in the first season. Monica Heisey is the author of the very funny Really Good Actually, which just came out a week ago and became an instant Sunday Times bestseller. It's about a woman in her 20s getting divorced, which is something that Monica herself did aged 28, weirdly just after she had begun to write a different novel in which her character Kathleen had started to have marriage problems. That book didn't make it, which we talk about here, but Monica is pretty used to things not making it because she's also a TV writer for things including Schitt's Creek and Comedian, worlds in which rejection at various stages really is par for the course. Monica was so great to talk to about outlines, since doing this interview I feel enthusiastic about plotting for the first time ever. We also chat about avoiding writing until characters pop up in your head all the time, and about rom-coms. Yes, we talk about When Harry Met Sally in this interview, and why heartbreak might actually be easier to write about than love. Enjoy! It's really good, actually, your first attempt at a novel. I know I know you've written and published bits and bobs of creative fiction before in the form of short stories, um, and of course your essays and all that, but but is really good actually your first attempt at a novel? Um, it's my first finished attempt at a novel. <laughs> I um I had been speaking to my agent Mariah about I I wrote an essay collection in like 2015. Um so funny. I've read it, it's really funny. Oh man, thank you. <laughs> um it was very it was a very small press. I'm always shocked when people in this country have even found it. Um no, it but, made me very hungry. It starts off all about food and yeah, it made me eat a lot. <laughs> so I did the essay collection and then my agent was like, 
do you have any novel ideas? Do you have anything you might want to work on as a novel? And I was working on this sort of maybe too ambitious for like a 25 year old. Um, although maybe it has nothing to do with age, just for me at that stage in my life was like this, this sweeping study of one, what, what would it be like if you just picked up one woman on any random day in her life and kind of jumping around and seeing which kind of stories about herself had stayed with her through the years in which, which what people stayed in her life and what kind of events recurred or didn't recur. I was just writing these little pieces set on different days, but it wasn't really coming together to be a whole until the woman I was writing about, I, her marriage fell apart, like in the course of the writing of it. Um, and I was really interested in that. I think probably because my own marriage was in the early stages of falling apart. Um, yeah, I was just going to say, because you were 28 when you got divorced, right? And yeah, yeah so this was before that happened. And that then happened in your yeah. attempt at a novel. That's interesting. Yeah, I became really interested in in how it happened and why and marital breakdown and like I wrote this whole kind of she went on a trip by herself and um the woman's name was Kathleen is Kathleen we may yet see Kathleen who knows um and yeah just like spent a lot of time like I was supposed to be skipping around in time and I just kept coming back to this period in her mid-40s where she was alone and then when my own relationship broke down and I was really going through it myself I was just like oh I think there's a lot more here for me to mm. get into. Yeah. And and it's interesting that that first book, if we can call it that, mm. um, so she was older when she had this breakup. You said you yes. mentioned her mid-40s there. So maybe you assumed that that was a more typical breakup story. And then obviously after what happened to you, you noticed that, you know, th- actually there wasn't much fiction about what had happened to you. Yeah, I think I think my setting that story in her 40s just speaks to like the wider kind of cultural imagination of what what divorce is and when it happens and what it looks like. And I was like, of course, she's middle aged, you know, of course, she's in her 40s and and finally figuring that out. And of course, there are children involved in a house and like she has some money to kind of freak out with. Um, And then none of those things were my experience at all. So I had to, you know, reimagine what I wanted to say based on what I was experiencing. Yeah. When you set about writing that um, first book, obviously, and I want to get into your TV writing and comedy stuff in a bit, but, you know, writing a novel is such a different sort of endeavor. Did it feel like quite an undertaking when you were doing that first attempt, let's say? Yeah, I was really, I was really intimidated. And I think, the reason that the first novel, the Kathleen novel was in short fragment pieces. And the reason that there are short fragment pieces in really good actually as well mm-hmm. is because I wanted to start at least with something I recognize. So my career kind of started with short form humor pieces, like for the New Yorker and the hairpin and um, or basically wherever it would take them. Um, and so I felt on kind of solid ground writing short form kind of character studies or little sketches almost um, and then once I had enough of those amassed, I I kind of dipped my toe into proper proper chapters of a novel. Um, but it was definitely a very daunting thing to have just like thousands and thousands and thousands of words spreading out before me. 
Yeah. So then when you did get to really having a, you know, stab at really good actually, did you do a similar sort of thing where you wrote in a fragmentary way and then kind of tried to coalesce it all together? (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I'm a big outline person because in TV, you can't really get to the fun writing part until like 90 people have signed off on your outline. <laughs> your oh my God, that sounds so horrible for ni- for novel writing. I mean, obviously you didn't have that exact same thing with novel writing, but I, I hate outlines. I just, I can't, yeah, I just, because I don't know what's going to happen until I've written it. That makes I sense. Used to, yeah, of course. I used to hate outlines and now I'm really into them. But um, also that things can change from the outline. Like definitely the outline that I had for the novel was a loose shape, but it was the kind of dramatic turning point ended up being something totally different than was outlined, but it came at the same time in the book, if that makes sense. Mm. Like the way that the action had progressed meant that it had to be something different or like I could just feel that it wasn't, it wasn't the outlined thing. But it's still, I still knew where I wanted to put whatever it was going to be. So yeah, I'm a big outline person. Um, But I did start with the shorter fragmentary pieces for Maggie as well, almost as like character studies, because the shorter pieces in this book are kind of Google search histories and um, emails and unanswered text messages. And they're a real objective window into how this person is doing. And the whole novel is about the difference between how you say you're doing and how you're actually doing. Yeah. Um, And these felt like they kind of broke Maggie's perspective with very confronting information about how she's actually doing. Um, They're very funny and very tragic at the same time. These. these Yeah. And actually later I'm going to going to read you one because I have another question on it. (laughs) But (laughs) did you have a few stabs at getting Maggie right? Because she's not you, but obviously you are being asked a lot in interviews, you know, how much is she you? Because there's this interesting story where you got divorced, then you wrote a book about this person that got divorced at a similar age to you. Was it quite a ride trying to find a way for her to be herself? I felt like it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be in the end. I think I was because I had committed very early on to writing a totally different relationship and a totally different sequence of events, um, I felt pretty free to borrow and then also to diverge from my own emotions. So I think I really could have helped myself out maybe by giving her brown hair. People seem really hung up (laughs) on the fact that we both have big red hair. Um, But I wanted to write about body image and stuff. And I just thought, to do that the most authentically. I mean, I have the most opinions about being in the world looking like this, but I, I found it all right, actually writing writing a person who was experiencing things that I recognized and having impulses and, re- and thoughts based on my emotional experience. But Maggie's behavior is so different from mine. I think it's so different from a lot of people's. In many ways, Maggie is like taking the kind of, little impulse or first like jerk reaction knee jerk reaction feeling we all have but then actually acting on it Mm -hmm. um which you know was kind of fun to write for me like she's like behaving in a way that I think most people wouldn't 
Uh, well, it's it's quite fun to read as well, but also quite painful to read. It has this almost like pantomime feel where you're like, don't, like he's behind you, don't do that, do the other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I think because I'm I'm an overthinker in a way that maybe Maggie isn't, I was just like, oh, I would never do these things. So it doesn't feel that connected to me. Obviously, now I'm living in a prison of my own making where everyone thinks that I had a threesome at a wedding. Um, <laughs> I did not. And you didn't. Okay. No. <laughs> so, so how hard was it to write then? Because I do think taking your own life and then, I mean, a lot of people use their own life to inspire what they write. I would say most people to some degree, but obviously there's such a solid connection in the hook. Um, was it hard to write? Was it was it painful to write? Was it hard getting to the desk every day? I mean, what was your what was your experience of writing it like? I waited quite some time after my breakup to start writing about it because I didn't really want to be writing from a place of like catharsis or um, you know, like setting the record straight or any of those kind of uh, maybe less less useful to me creative um, impulses. Like I I waited three years and a bit to start. Um, and and I think because it ended a lot a lot of therapy in that time. Um, and I think because of that, it wasn't it there were some parts where remembering how sad I felt, made me sad again um but not in a in an extended way you know like so much of the book's um driving engine is comedy anyway that I think it was more like looking back on this like difficult thing that had happened and picking through it for the kernels of wisdom that I had gained from it and kernels of particularly humor so it was almost it was almost fun to to get to turn something that had been quite bleak into something kind of funny and to mm-hmm. to to exaggerate elements of it or or change locations of where things had happened or fully invent a different place and circumstance to experience to explore you know an emotional experience i had had um and also my my writing process is um very what's the most fun based so once you have the outline which is the least fun thing you can do you just pick on that day what sounds like the most fun to write of all the stuff on your outline so hopefully you're never coming to the page like dreading what you have to work on there's always some something in the outline that might be fun so how that's so interesting so how detailed is your outline because I mean I wouldn't say that um I wouldn't say that Really Good actually is an especially plotty book. It's oh, quite yeah. a sort of, it's quite a kind of scenic book. There are lots of scenes where things happen, but, and, and they do flow on from one another, but it's not, it's not got the kind of beats that some books have. Yeah. How did, how detailed is your outline? It's almost like a table of contents, I would say. So I would like come up with the, the short form pieces um, and then, it, because it's set during a year, I did a couple things to try and keep it simple for myself with this being a first novel. So it's set during the course of one year. So that was kind of a, an easy way to know, orient myself, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they weren't traditional chapters as such, but it would be like, you know, I guess landmarks in the course of a year in the life of a recently single person. So like Maggie tells her friends would be like one section and, you know, 
Google search histories, it's going bad. Google search <laughs> histories, it's going better. Um, yeah. You know, crying in a spin class, whatever. And then kind of just looked at everything I wanted to include and saw what could kind of be grouped together. So like um, telling her friends and like having to clean the apartment for the first time when you've been living in a kind of depressive state, those, those things go easily together. You know, you can clean up because your friends are coming over. So it wasn't like plot points necessarily. It was more like milestones over the course of that Mm. first year. I love this idea of an outline. It's making me want to outline, actually. So thank you for that. I always think that being an outliny writer sounds better. Um, but every time I try to do it properly, I fail. So this is this is motivating. I think it's really, as long as you accept that you might not follow the outline, to me, it just feels like you never have to start the day being like, oh, shit, what am I going to do? You can just look at this list of best intentions for your own book and then pick something to try. It's like, yeah, I, f- I find it weirdly liberating. I think it's like it's the least fun part of writing. And then you kind of clear that off your desk and get to do the fun part. Mm. Well, I think what is really obvious from the way that you talk is how experienced a writer in other formats you were when you came to the desk to write a novel. And I think that's obviously help so let's talk about tv um so you were a tv writer and a comedian is that is that the correct you did stand up and all that sort of stuff as well didn't you how did you get into both those things the tv writing and the comedy and yeah what 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 were your 20s like working in both of those areas yeah one of them kind of led into the other as often happens I have always been always even as a kid very interested in both writing and performing and then went to like a performing arts high school where like we didn't have any sports teams so we had an improv team so um and worse than that we thought that was cool so (laughs) it is cool I've spoken to a few people in Canada and um, America who have had these things I don't think we have this here really maybe we do and I've just missed it it sounds a lot more fun yeah the Canadian improv games is a really uh important and special part of my teen and young adult years. I can't deny it. And so I was performing comedy from a pretty early age, like in those ways and writing like one act plays at school and stuff. And then when I went to university, kind of continued doing comedy in my spare time and was like writing for the student newspaper. But had my parents were always very like supportive of of me having creative passions but not particularly of the idea of the creative industries as a place where you could actually be employed so but then very short-sightedly they were fine with me trying to be an academic so I decided to take my kind of interest in performance and study um early modern theater um and so I moved over to the UK to do that do you mind and, me asking what your parents do? It's interesting that they had that um I know that, that perspective. My dad is a lawyer, was a lawyer, he just retired, and my mom uh, worked for the government. Right. Okay. So they had so the, very the, traditional jobs. Yeah. And my sisters are both nurses. I think it's it, wow, it's very okay. interesting to them. They're yeah. they're great, they get it now, but it took a long time. They've always been so supportive, but also I think like a lot of parents, nervous, scared. Um, I mean, that makes sense to a degree that it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a, you know, it's a scary profession. 
to to start out in in particular I think that doesn't it doesn't mean not to try <laughs> um and I think moving away from my like and also all my friends have have fairly traditional jobs over in Canada too because I met them at school and then moved away so I think moving over here where I didn't know anyone and having to start over and make friends based on what I was interested in I fell back on the things that I've always been interested in writing and performing um and so started meeting people through comedy and like did the Edinburgh Festival which just blew my mind I blew my mind I can't believe the scale of it and the mm. the enthusiasm of audiences and performers it, it was the the scope it was just like I couldn't I've never seen anything like it I was yeah. really really inspired and and decided to try and stay and make a go of it um and then like work you know again the same as in university just worked in media kind of like interned at vice magazine wrote like sexting guides for the guardian um and performed <laughs> comedy in my spare time but I mean it's not like everyone can just walk in and do that by the way you know getting those jobs in vice and those freelance um gigs at, at the guardian that these are difficult things to get and they show if you're in your early 20s and you're getting those you're talented did you realize that when this was happening to you um I think I didn't I didn't have any time to think about it because I was getting paid so little that I had to Mm -hmm. write like nine pieces a month to make rent with my bartending job so I was just and I think to a certain extent I've only recently realized that I don't have to be scrambling because I was scrambling for my entire 20s, you know, working in media at that time, you were making like between $20 and 200 pounds maybe per piece. But yeah. really some places were paying $20. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it was a it was a real scramble. Um, And then when I ran out of visa options, moved back to Canada, I was doing the same thing. And I'm sorry, this is such a long rambly way to answer this question. <laughs> no, but I mean, getting a career started, a career like this started is rambly. So I, I want to hear it all. <laughs> yeah, I moved back home to Canada and kept freelancing for the British and American publications that I had started freelancing for, um, kept performing like sketch and stand up and improv sometimes. And then I had a local column on a, a very small local website called shedoesthecity.com, which is a very <laughs> sweet local website for the girlies in Toronto. And um, it was like a joke advice column. And it became kind of popular like locally. And I got offered the tiniest book deal in the whole world for my first book. I think they, I honestly think they must have needed to publish a young woman that year to get a grant or something because they told me I could get <laughs> anything I wanted, but they needed it in four months. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so I like scrambled to get the book together. And then while I was promoting it, I, I went on a show where you, a guest is interviewed and then comedians do improv based on the interview answers. And those women were, um, who were doing the improv afterwards we're like oh your book sounds interesting do you ever write sketch comedy and do you have any samples we could look at we're putting together a sketch show for cbc um, and we need to get a writing room together and i sent in my samples from like an old edinburgh show and that was my first tv job was on a sketch show called baroness one sketch show and they taught me so much and i was with them for all five seasons of the show how amazing Uh, and then of course you did 
bigger and better and very, very well-known things like Schitt's Creek and stuff eventually. But let's just pause for a second and revisit this time when I know that when we spoke before this interview, you mentioned the sort of rejections that's par for the course as part of this world. Mm -hmm. And I know about what that's like in freelance journalism, but tell us a little bit about what it's like in TV, because I know that there's, I mean, there's such a, you mentioned before that, you know, 90 people have to okay your outline. Presumably it's like that times a thousand with every show you pitch, every show you're part of, it might get greenlit and then crumble. What's all that like? Because presumably you have to develop a very thick skin when it comes to rejection. Yeah, I think, and I think it's so much more intense, like getting your outline improved as a staff writer is one thing, but I wasn't really... I didn't really realize how intense it would be in the development process. Once you're at a stage where you're pitching your own shows, um, there, there are so many factors that lead to it being as kind of unlikely <laughs> as it is for a show to see the light of day. I always think it's interesting when books get optioned and um, everyone who doesn't work in TV in your life, is like, Oh my God, your book's going to be on TV. And you're like, I mean, maybe in four years, if we're lucky, but getting something optioned is like 10% of the work of getting a show onto uh, a network or a streamer or wherever. So particularly in somewhere like Canada, where the market is, is very small and there's one, there's basically one network. There are a couple other little ones, but there's, there's one really. So you're having to make something that fits whatever the man, you know, whether or not you have an idea that fits into kind of the gaps in programming that this network has. So you might have a great idea about a coming of age show about some witches who solve a murder or something with their magic, whatever it is, a great idea. Don't steal my incredible pitch. (laughs) Um, And then they've, they've already just commissioned a show about a group of teen vampires who are solving murders in their way. And they're like, well, we don't really need anything in that space. So it doesn't has nothing to do whatsoever with the quality of your idea or your script or the people you have working on it and everything to do with what this large, you know, corporate entity wants or needs from their their like various market research studies. Yeah. Um, Quite similar to publishing, actually, in that sense. I mean, how much everybody's working on their lists and you don't know where the gap in that list is going to be. But how much work do you have to have done to get to that stage where you're pitching? Do you have to have, forgive me, forgive my ignorance, but do you have to have written a pilot? Do you just have to have written a pitch? What? How much have you, are you invested at various stages? It sort of depends how successful you are. So if you are, um, if you're a recent staff writer who is 27, you have to have a huge show, but like I was when I pitched my first show, you have to have a show Bible and often a more experienced showrunner attached, someone who's going to be like, okay, this this person has no idea what they're doing. But Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We do, we do have someone on board who's going to help uh, and you have to have written a pilot and you've probably mapped out loosely the rest of the season of the show, um, how that's going to go with like a, these days, occasionally they want like a three season arc. <gasps> not not oh my god um, yeah not like super detailed but they want to know that this show has some longevity and that there you have thought about where these characters are going to be going past season one yeah and putting a bible together it sounds like to me the bible is is the the hardest part if you don't like an outline you're really not going to like a bible because it's basically like all of the information required to understand the show but also put in sort of like a peppy zippy marketing tone. Oh God. It sounds like a synopsis on steroids. Yeah. It's a really weird mix of, of creative writing and, and marketing, which comes, I think not as naturally to a lot of writers. Mm. Okay. So how did you learn this lesson of not everything that people show interest in is going to actually get made? What were your first experiences of this awful, awful thing? I think that I was the same as like my parents are when they hear about a book option at first. Like when I got my first show idea developed, I was like, great. Like, so after an option, which is a production company expressing interest in trying to sell your idea, then the next stage would be getting something put into development, which means that a network is interested in building on this idea and trying to make it something that they would maybe put on TV. And so I think the first time that I got past the option stage into the development stage, and maybe this is just like the enthusiasm of any kind of beginner at any stage, then when you advance to the next stage, you're like, I made it. And obviously there are just more and more stages after that. And you've only made it to this stage. But there was a period where I was developing a new project in Canada, like one new project a year. So I had a couple different projects in development and I felt like, one of them has to go. Of course, at this point, it's just a numbers game. You know, I have three shows in development. One of them will develop into something that they're looking for. But that's not really how it works. People develop dozens of ideas before they get to to make something, you know? And you're having these conversations and changing things. I, I remember we sent in a pilot and they said, could we up the jokes in this? There's sort of, could we like up the comedy? It's it's reading a little bit comedy drama and we'd like it to be more pure comedy. Can we up the jokes? And then we sent it back and the note came back. It's a little jokey. <laughs> <laughs> but people don't know what they want until they have it in their hands. Yeah, you sort of have to show them everything that they can reject until they don't reject one anymore. Yeah. So what happened when with those multiple shows at the same time where you were expecting... At least one of them to. Nothing. Oh my Absolutely God. One of them is still my, one of a sample that I, so say like a sample script that my managers give to people in LA when they ask, do I have a example of my, my writing? 
So it's not like a totally lost cause and it's really good practice. And it's not like you're doing it for free. They pay you, but, but, um, but it's good practice to kind of think through a show like that. And I think if you can let go of the idea, I do think basically it's better to assume that it's not going to happen because most shows in development don't go particularly if you don't have any famous people attached yeah. um, at any point, like a, a, a cool buzzy director or, or like a, a showrunner who's really experienced or best case scenario, very famous and gorgeous actor. So it was, ju- I just like was learning by doing these mm-hmm. long kind of pilot edits and, and series Bibles. And, you know, I was very bad at writing a series document when I started I'm still not great at them, but I, I'm much better than I was. It's very, yeah. it's a very weird kind of, kind of writing to do, but it's, it's good practice to do it. Um, do you I get know. upset when, when things fall through? Um, I was very disappointed the first time, the first time I was developing a show with one of the senior writers from the sketch show that I was on and she was, she and I were working on it together and they arranged a call right before Christmas with all of the network people we'd been working on and their boss. And I was like, that seems pretty good. This seems great. And then they just got on the phone and were making a small talk with us about our Christmas plans. And I realized that it wasn't going to happen because they would have just said the good news off the top. Like they were buttering us up to say, no, thank you. And I was pretty disappointed. I was like at a friend's house and had to go take the call. I was like, I gotta go take the call, see if my life's going to change. And they're a TV writer too. So they, they were sort of like, well, good luck. Who knows? And yeah, I think that one was quite disappointing. You start to understand that those kind of disappointments are actually very standard Mm -hmm. and that it's really part of the job. And you kind of just have to let the waves sort of crash over you. Yeah move on to the next future disappointment (laughs) is it hard to come to the desk or you know the proverbial desk to to write a new thing because in a way it just sounds more I guess more like frenetic than novel writing because novel writing a novel is like one big project you're probably working on one at a time and I mean that's a lot of work to get put into something that yeah might well get rejected but um your headspace is in one place at the same time. Whereas it sounds like with you, you know, you have to field these potential rejections, but also bring some enthusiasm, especially as a comedy writer, to the desk. How do you do that? It sounds really hard. <laughs> yeah, I I will say that I really loved about the novel writing process that you have a fully realized idea because so much of this is pitching based on the potential of the show. Um, what it could be, what it might be, what someone imagines it to be. Whereas with a novel, you can be like, no, here's the thing. This is what it is. Instead of having these sort of endless conversations about what it what it might be or what it looks like or how this person envisioned it. Um, and in terms of maintaining enthusiasm, I think the key is to only, div- and again, this is maybe me learning not to scramble, is that at the beginning of my career, I sort of said yes to everything. And then you end up, realizing that you're developing ideas that maybe are not as creatively exciting to you for like four years, Mm. you know, the, the, the option lasts like, let's say two years and then they can renew it for another year and a half. And if you're not enthusiastic about the idea or at the very least the people that you're working with, which is I think even more important than whatever the idea is, because you can make anything work 
probably. Mm -hmm. Um, but if you don't like and respect and enjoy collaborating with the, the producers who you're working with, it's not going to be easy to maintain your enthusiasm over time. And yeah. I think in general, not attaching yourself to things that don't really light you up or don't have something at the core of them, a character or a situation that you're really, really inspired by and interested in exploring, um, you shouldn't do it. Mm, yeah. So interesting. What do you think you would do now if you had a novel rejected bringing to to that experience or this experience of um, having low expectations in TV writing? I think it would be very crushing because of how big a novel is and how alone you are. With a, with a TV show, you're working with producers who have like many, many, many other shows on their slate and who are getting accepted and rejected all the time. And so you can all kind of pat yourselves on the back and be like, we tried, we might regroup, try this again somewhere else, or you can take the idea to a different production company that can repackage it and try again, which I would imagine is true with novels as well. You can kind of take it back, take it apart, go through it and try and send it back out. But I think because it's so the thing I like about making the novel, I think would be the thing that would, would be so scary about being rejected, which is that it feels so solo and personal and not like this plucky team trying to get something out there. It's just sort of you in your house by yourself. It's, it's almost the same thing as like doing stand up or something where you have to get out on stage by yourself and be like, I, this is what I think is funny. I came up with this at home and I thought it would be funny if I said it. And now I'm saying it. And if you don't laugh, we're all the same level of embarrassed for me, which oh, is very, very, very. Have you had that experience in stand-up? A little bit, yeah. I, I Particularly after being in the UK and coming back to Canada, where there's a really different style of stand-up. I do like, I read these little short stories and I do these sort of meandering, like non-poem poems. And I think then I was like going on to like a classic North American open mic where it's very like, who here's on Tinder? <laughs> and I just like, <laughs> didn't, I didn't fit on those bills and I couldn't really, I think the British audiences are these amazingly adaptive and invested people, or they can be where they're used to an, a, a mixed bill night where it's like, there's a double act and there's a musical comedian and there's somebody who's doing like mime or something. Um, and I, I think that's like due to the influence of the fringe. Mm, uh, yeah. People are yeah. just really trained up to see all sorts. You live in London now, right? Mm. Yeah. So you have, you, you fit into the British sense of humor. I like this. I, <laughs> um, I don't know if you are going to find this question too embarrassing to answer, but when do you first remember being funny? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I do remember. I think I have always really been in drawn to funny, right? Like I read a lot as a kid. Um, my parents were very big on like get books as gifts, every kind of gift, Christmas, birthdays, whatever you were getting a book, no question. And they, they gave us a lot of classics, which I sometimes found dry, but I was really interested in like Charles Dickens and Jane Austen, who are incredibly funny writers, um, you know, finding PG Woodhouse was like a revelation because um, mm -hmm. it's just so funny. I think it's just always what I've been looking for 
from a reading experience. And because it's my favorite stuff to read, and I've always been a little nerdy baby writer, I think you imitate your favorite writer. So I've always been striving to write funny stuff. Like I remember writing, I found it recently when I was, well, I guess not recently, pre-pandemic when I was moving over here, back over here, I found like a piece of writing from when I was like eight or nine. And it's very obviously an attempt at a satire. And it's it's so bad. And it's basically (laughs) just someone like an unself-aware person saying the opposite of what he thinks he's saying, kind of like describing (laughs) this trip that he went on as if it was really glamorous and luxurious, but the stuff he's describing is is really not and it's it's such it's so it's so sweet and so bad um and there were a couple other kind of like stabs at that so I think I think I've always all reading stuff that makes me laugh and writing stuff that makes other people laugh has been an interest of mine always yeah and when you when you're writing funny stuff down particularly with the novel because it does have to fit into this you know this sort of longer cohesive narrative are you are you like really going over every line and honing every joke as if it's in like a 500 word piece or how does that work because I mean writing comedy is difficult I think I think because it has to look so easy on the page yeah um I I I did what I do so a lot of scripts um like by the time a script is finished and has been through all of the people to approve it sometimes they'll say it needs a joke pass um, or a punch-up pass which is where you just go through and kind of add some more punchlines or make sure that the punchlines are really hitting and I did a joke pass in the novel too um, just to to make sure that things were really clear to make sure that the moments that I wanted to be funny were as funny as they could be and the moments that I or the moments where she was kind of doing a little comic aside it was clearly like a punchline setup and punchline. I think I really did want there to be genuine punchlines in the book. I think there's a lot, we describe books as funny a lot that are often, I'm not even sure the authors are going necessarily for like funny. They're, they're very observational. They're very, or they're very casual in tone or they're very accurate about how society is right now, but they're not necessarily going for comedy in particular, like hard comedy. Mm-hmm. And I, I was very keen to try to do that just because mm-hmm. of the kind of things I like to read. And um, I wanted to make sure there were, yeah, there were proper punchlines and not just like some thoughts. Yeah, no. And they, and they are proper punchlines. It is very funny. Um, yeah. Coming back to the book, it has some kind of rom com vibes at points. And in fact, when I read it, I had just read that, I don't know if you saw that Guardian op-ed by the American woman about her toxic writer ex-boyfriend who loved Nora Ephron. Did you see this? Yeah, yes. Yeah, and I had just read it when I started reading really good, actually. And for some reason, I then kept expecting your character, Simon, to rock up and say, I love Nora Ephron. I felt like <laughs> <laughs> I felt like he would love Nora Ephron somehow. But anyway, yeah, it, it, it has some nods towards rom-com. And I know you've said in the past that you love rom-coms. And I wondered what your favorite rom-com is and also whether you think it is easier to write about heartbreak or love oh that's such a good question um my favorite romantic comedy and favorite film of all time is when harry met sally oh yeah it's good perfect. one. it's just perfect it's a perfect film i think 
And I think romantic comedies get a really bad rap for being, I guess, frothy or because there's something that women like or whatever, but ultimately they're films about relationships between people, which is the most interesting thing that I can think of, you know, the ways that people interact with each other and hurt each other and flirt with each other and fall into bed together. Um, it's sort of the only, the only like theme I'm really interested in. Um, and I think probably heartbreak is a little easier to write about because it feels like you can fall in love in more ways than you can have your heart broken. The experience of falling in love, there are some commonalities to the feeling but it can happen in all these different ways whereas heartbreak it's like something's working and then something's not working anymore for whatever reason whether it's a really sudden thing or whether it's a long slow crumble Hmm. there's like there is an immediate end point to it where things are not how they were anymore whereas falling in love is this like process like the tide coming in and then a breakup is like an earthquake it's just so much more, it's so much more intense and sudden. And so I think, I think falling in love maybe is a bigger, is a bigger challenge. Mm, that's interesting. That's interesting. I wish we would have more of an era of rom-coms. We're kind of out of it, certainly film-wise. And even in publishing, it's not, it's not the most lauded genre, but people want it. They, they love it. People are, this is my thing with When Harry Met Sally that I'm constantly telling production companies. When Harry Met Sally was like, a box office hit and critically acclaimed and nominated for the Oscar. You know, when people get it right, it's everything that people want. Yeah. It's just that we have let it become, we've let the genre fall into disrepair, certainly in television and film, I think, where it's become this like, and maybe disrepair is the wrong word, but we've all, we've invested in the Hallmark version of it, but there's also an elevated version of it that we don't really see a lot of anymore. I thought worst person in the world was a, a good attempt at that uh, elevating a kind of like thinky rom-com yeah um yeah I'm actually quite on board for the non-thinky rom-coms also like yeah. I will happily scroll the romance section of Netflix and watch a lot of stuff and enjoy it but yeah when people get it really right it is an entirely different genre almost and they need to they, they need to bring that back people would absolutely love it yeah. um you do it. You do it, Monica. Okay. I'm trying so hard to do it. I'm having okay. I'm having constant meetings where I'm desperately begging people to let me do it. <laughs> well, you have a huge audience waiting, um, as I'm sure you know. Okay. So like we mentioned before, really it actually has these quirky little sort of sort of chapters, sort of sometimes listicles. And yeah, a lot of them are about things Maggie has Googled in the night. Um, they're really funny, but some of them are sort of sad too. And I just wanted to read you one of them. You actually posted this on Instagram this week, but it reminded me that I wanted to ask you about it. Okay, the chapter, well, the chapter-ish sort of thing is called Emotionally Devastating Things My Therapist Said to Me Like They Were Nothing. And the first little bit that um, Maggie writes is, I'm going to start today's session by challenging you not to try to make me laugh during our time together. This is not because you are not an amusing person, but I wonder where we might get if we did away with the idea of trying to entertain. As an entertaining um, writer, I thought this was a very funny thing to put down (laughs) on paper. And I wonder where you would be if you stopped trying to entertain. Do you think you could write stuff that was 
deliberately avoiding trying to be well not and everything has to be engaging right otherwise people wouldn't read or watch it but not funny in that way I think it was interesting in the book because Maggie is someone who's using humor as a distancing tool Um, but I was hoping to use humor as a, a tool to draw in the reader so we were sort of at cross purposes and I hope I kind of got the balance right there yeah I think finding it would be I think it would be genuinely difficult for me to write something that didn't have comic elements in it not because I'm desperate for people to be laughing throughout reading something but because I actually find some of some of the books and films and things that I've been watching where it's just dramatic and just sad throughout to be a little bit unconvincing because I don't think anything in life is just sad and I don't think anything in life is just funny. And I think I'm trying to capture how life actually is, the experience of how the, in this particular book, how the experience of a relational breakdown actually feels. And on the one hand, it feels devastating and heartbreaking. And on the other hand, it feels ridiculous and kind of silly and um, manic sometimes, you know? And I, I just, it's important to me to capture the full range of, how an experience is. And mm-hmm. I, I think it would be very rare to have a, a full day where you didn't see or think or experience something funny. So I, I feel like there's a little bit of a sense sometimes that the presence of punchlines means that you're sacrificing the emotional integrity of a scene or the dramatic punch of a scene. But to me, all of the best drama, like, you know, you look at something like Mad Men or The Sopranos, these big classic dramas. Mm have really big comic scenes as well. Crazy scenes, you know, in Mad Men, like um, Ginsburg cuts his nipple off and gives it to Don in a gift box. Oh my God, I've forgotten that scene. <laughs> you know, and that, that scene is is both very funny and very bizarre and a sign that this uh, colleague is having a total breakdown in mental episode. And it can be both of those things at the same time without sacrificing one or the other. That's so true. And actually, both those shoes, both those shows have this almost innate physical comedy going on, too, where the, the cast are that there's just something innately funny about them, like huge Tony sort of with his just his body movements are innately funny, I think, sometimes. And Don is almost sort of pitiful sometimes oh, with yeah. this with his smart hat and his and then his obvious issues that come out very very quickly (laughs) yeah they sort of riff off that innate comedy almost instantly don't they you're so right okay well just quickly tell us about what you're working on next because I know you're writing another book and also you have your first own show coming out the one that the one that has made it yeah I know um ironically it was a show that I wasn't part of the development process I came on fairly late in the game so I mean I was we we did a we did a pilot that I wrote um which is kind of what comes after the development part um and then after the pilot they have to say yes to the show (laughs) So there's still many more stages. So yeah, I'm um, in the edit right now for my first um, show that I was the showrunner of. It'll be out on Sky sometime in the summer, I think. And it, I'm sorry to say it doesn't have a title right now. We're still <laughs> we're still in the process of coming to an agreement on a title. Fair enough. Uh, Titles are hard. They're very hard. Um, and the title that we have had throughout turns out to another show has it, so we can't use it. 
Okay. <laughs> um, and then I'm, yeah, I'm starting on a second novel, which is about a group of friends. I was really keen to try and write from multiple perspectives after writing something so claustrophobically inside one character's head, which is intimidating, but also cool to me. How are you finding that writing a second one? Is it a similar experience? I'm in still in the um, very, very early stages. So for me, you have to think about it for like a year. And then eventually, if you've thought about it enough, it starts to show up just like in your brain. And that's when you know it's kind of time to start moving into the next phase of it. So you've noodled around with it. And then yeah. now it's popping up in my head where I'll think of like a little line or like something that could happen to the character. Like I know the characters enough now that they're hanging out with me a little bit. And it's I'm- so wonderful when that happens. I worked on something. Um, I've, I've been ill for a couple of years with long COVID. So I was only intermittently working on stuff, but I was working on something about a year ago and, and it just wasn't doing that. Basically it wasn't popping up in my head. And eventually I dropped it. Cause I was like, this, this, this is dead. I'm working yeah. on it, but it's dead because it doesn't, it doesn't want to kind of, it doesn't want to pop up for whatever yeah, reason. And if they're not bothering you in your spare time, <laughs> then yeah. Yeah, you got to leave them for a bit. Maybe, maybe they'll pop up like years from now. Right. Well, <laughs> well, now I'm working on something that is popping up, but it's just really interesting to notice the difference and right. Maybe something will make the other things work later, which can often happen. Maybe your Kathleen has another, has an, another iteration. I know. I really wonder about her. <laughs> but she, you can't write another divorce book though, right? Or maybe no, you can. But... Oh my God. No, no, we're moving on from divorce. <laughs> <laughs> you give Kathleen another, another storyline, a, a happier storyline. Yeah. Maybe they reconcile. If you enjoyed Write Off, please do share it with others. And please, please, please consider leaving a review on the iTunes app, which really helps other people find the podcast. Do come find me to chat on Twitter, where I'm at Francesca Steele, and Instagram, where I'm at Francesca Steele Writes. I'll put that in the show notes. Thanks, and see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.